Who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, somebody lied. I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Welcome to Now Playing's Amazing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. Can Spider-Man come out to play? Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. The real crime would be not to finish what we started. Hosted by Jacob. I like you. <laughs> Stuart. They love me. And Arnie. Give them a good show. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Tuesday and Friday for another Spider-Man movie review, ending in a week of release review of this summer's The Amazing Spider-Man. We're gonna have a hell of a time. Ooh, my spider sense is tingling. If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if your spider sense is tingling, it's because this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language. So listener discretion is advised. Go get him, Tiger. Today we're discussing Spider-Man 3. I feel like I've been here before. Starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Thomas Hayden Church, Topher Grace, and Bryce Dallas Howard. Directed by Sam Raimi. It's Arnie, sir. Arnie Carvalho Jr. I come before you today, humbled and humiliated, to ask you for one thing. I want you to help me get through Spider-Man 3. <laughs> Stuart in L.A. I like being bad. It makes me happy. This is Jacob. Guys, if it wasn't for Amazing Spider-Man last week, do you have any idea how tempting it is to announce this is my final show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Are we still at this place? I don't know anything on Earth that upsets you more than Spider-Man 3. No, it's just symmetry. You know I like symmetry. Now playing started with Marjorie and I in the parking lot of a Toys R Us with an iPhone, saying, oh, now playing, we'll do it real quick, 20-minute shows, no editing, it'll be fine. <laughs> in the parking lot of a Toys R Us, Burger King bags with toys in the back seat, reviewing Spider-Man 3. That was our very first show. Man, it would just be so symmetrical to make this our very last show. Let's cut it off at 20 minutes. I want to go to bed at a reasonable hour tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, we know that's not going to happen. But I did not see Spider-Man 3 ever before this podcast. But I know when this movie came out, and I know what I was doing. Arnie, I don't know if you remember this or not, but this movie had such an impact on you that you called me in a blind rage. You sound like someone is dead. I'm like, what? 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 <laughs> Hobgoblin? Wait, what are you What are you talking about? Who's going? Who? What? Spider-Man, huh? Okay. Um, can I talk? Um, sure. You know, I'm like, I, I, okay. in, in my defense, A... 
it was more because I had things to say about it, and B, you and I have had these exact conversations we have on Now Playing for many, many a year beforehand. There was just nobody other than Marjorie at that time I could turn to to discuss and deconstruct a film <laughs> in this way. It wasn't that I was traumatized, it's that I had a lot to say. Yes. And you were the one who could most understand. Yes, and now more people hear it, but yes, I feel like in some ways, your first now playing recording, that was mine as well. It was definitely <laughs> talking you down from the ledge about a movie. It was quite a thing. Well, the hype cannot be measured for me on this one. I mean, it is not the movie that started now playing. Now playing would have happened had Spider-Man 3 been that year or not. No, that was Ghost Rider. <laughs> yeah, Ghost Rider earlier the same year was the birthplace of Now Playing. But Spider-Man 3 was the movie I was so excited for. Jacob, you were on Star Wars Action News at this time. Do you remember? Oh, you were hype level DEFCON 4 or whatever the highest level is. It's above that. It was Code Spider-Man, Marjorie called it, because that's red. <laughs> code Iron Man was yellow for one step below. We had the terror threat system for Arnie's hype level. It's still used to this day. Code Spider-Man means, woo, woo, take the credit cards. <laughs> yeah, you were big. So, Spider-Man 3, after Spider-Man being good, and Spider-Man 2 being great, although you guys disagree with that, Spider-Man 3... First of all, Raimi could do no wrong. I forgive you for the love of the game and the quick and the dead. And Venom! Venom! Finally, Venom! We talked way back, in, I think during our TV movie one, The Chinese Web, that in the late 80s, early 90s, the rumors were all Venom would be the villain. Even though Green Goblin, Dr. Octopus, they're the classic ones, Venom was the one that sold most comic books. That's the one for the younger generation. Venom in a Spider-Man movie by Sam Raimi, off the hook excited. More excited than I was for Avengers this year. And if listeners want to hear the sound of a heart breaking... <laughs> Go listen to episode one of Now Playing, way down on our archive page, the almost very bottom, recorded again in a parking lot mere minutes after walking out of Spider-Man 3. You know, I've never listened to that show. I didn't know that's when you recorded it. I felt like my phone conversation with you was enough <laughs> to know where you were at with that movie, but I can't wait to go do that. I also wonder, I, I said last time, could you really disavow a Spider-Man movie? Yeah, that was you in the moment at the time, disappointed. But I'll be very curious if any of that holds now that we've had some perspective, some distance. It's been what? It's been five years. I will say, when this came out on Blu-ray, I was going to not buy it. But they did what they always do. If you want one and two on blue, you got to buy three. So I bought it. Or you can just be a little patient. They'll finally release them in singles. Well, they did this year, five years later. I'm not that patient. <laughs> I did rewatch Spider-Man 3, and I've seen it actually a couple more times since theaters. And this is maybe my fifth or sixth watching, and seventh and eighth and ninth for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the movie that broke his heart still gets nine watching. <laughs> That's gotta be torture. I mean, hell. <laughs> well, this is my first time watching this movie all the way through. I didn't see Spider-Man 2 in theaters. I eventually rented it. And then this one came out and I was there with you, Arnie. As much as I didn't like Spider-Man 2, it's Venom. It's gotta be cool just for that, right? And then reviews started coming out. I'm sure I've listened to that original Now Playing podcast. I remember just hearing how awful this was. So I'm like, oh, easy skip. 
the only time I've ever seen any part of this, I was at a Walmart getting the oil changed in my car, and the like DVD had just come out for Spider-Man 3, and they were playing it on all their TVs. So while I was waiting for my car to get the oil changed, I sat there and I watched it from the beginning. I saw maybe half of it, and then you know I recorded it when it was playing on FX one night, and it sat on my DVR for two or three years, and then I... <laughs> Moved to Texas, so I had to turn the, the DVR back in, so I never saw it. So finally, I've sat down and watched this whole film for the first time all the way through. And like I said, I didn't see this movie or the last movie in theaters, but I was at Comic-Con in 2006 when they did the big unveil here. They actually trotted out all the stars. It was Raimi, Maguire, Dunst, Bryce Dallas Howard. They all came out. It was an explosion of enthusiasm. So having been witness to how popular the series was, one that I personally wasn't that invested in, and then to know from those very same fans that it had become this pariah. I was actually intrigued. I actually wanted to see, is this Batman and Robin? Is this Howard the Duck? Is this really a betrayal? Is this as bad as they say it is? I sometimes can be interested in something I normally wouldn't want to see when the response is so extreme in one direction or another. Let me ask, you said Dunst was there? I think she was there. I can't imagine she would have been. She barely wanted to be on the set. Did anyone want to be on this set? I remember hearing everyone trying to back away from this film. They all wanted to be there when I saw them at Comic-Con, and I think that they thought they were going to be in the biggest hit of the year. Who wouldn't want to be in a big blockbuster? The newbies particularly were excited to be a part of a hugely successful series. I think McGuire was game because by this point, he and Raimi were BFFs. I really believe that. I think that... McGuire would follow Raimi off a bridge. I think Topher Grace was really jazzed to be there. He's a Spider-Man fan. He is like me. He read all the comics. He's like, I'm not Eddie Brock. I can't put on that much muscle, Sam, if that's what you want me to do. Because Eddie Brock's like a bodybuilder in the comics. He was really excited just to be part of Spider-Man and getting all giddy at the thought that he'd have an action figure of himself. Bryce Dallas Howard, I know very little about her, but I think they were game. But Dunst, man, Dunst, before this movie came out, I went back and reread an issue of Entertainment Weekly that I saved from 07. <laughs> Is it polybagged and boarded? <laughs> it might be. And Dunst, in this pre-release interview, goes, she doesn't want to come back, and that if they reboot with another director and actor after this one, it's a mistake. The quote is, it's disrespectful to the whole team, I think, to do that. And audiences aren't stupid. It'd be a big flop without me and Toby or Sam. We'll, we'll find see. out. Yeah, <laughs> that's opening tomorrow, but I predict it won't be such a flop. It may not be as successful as the original Spider-Man, but whatever its status at the box office, it won't be because Kirsten Dunst is or isn't involved. I think she was in a bad place to begin with. She kind of retired from Hollywood shortly thereafter and, yes, wasn't happy with this movie. But, yeah, it seemed like even before this one was out... And my spider sense should have tingled. It seemed like there was some hedging of bets and some compromises made. It was known going in, Raimi did not like Venom, didn't want to do Venom, didn't understand Venom. Raimi read the Spider-Man comics in the 60s and 70s. Venom was created in the 80s, a totally new aesthetic for a totally new age, and not fitting with Raimi's vision. Spider-Man 1 came up, Javier Rod's like, do Venom! If not Venom, Doc Ock! And Raimi's like, no, we're going to do Green Goblin. Number two, do Venom! 
And Raimi's like, no, we'll do that Doc Ock thing you'd mentioned as a backup. Number three comes, and they knew they were going to do Sandman, because they'd pushed him off. And they had entered into talks with Ben Kingsley to play the Vulture. (sighs) The Vulture? Yeah, a geriatric old man dressed as a bird. That's what the kids want. (laughs) But Avia Rod flexed some toy maker muscle, and Kingsley was out, and Eddie Brock Venom was in against Raimi's will. They pulled the, what what did you call it, the toyetic card on this one? (laughs) Possibly. Yeah, Venom is definitely a character I know, is the only character I imagine I know that wasn't in the 60s cartoon. I know that you loved him, Arnie. I know that if you wanted to make Spider-Man the action movie that would be the way to go. You couldn't get a more badass, threatening character. And we had the technology that they wouldn't have had in the 90s. You could actually do him properly on screen in this past decade. So the time seemed right to finally put Venom in live action. It had never happened before. But don't forget, there's also that whole Harry is a goblin, too. There's a lot of ambition here in Spider-Man 3 to try and corral everything that the last movie set up with everything that Avi Arad wants with what Raimi hoped to take the project to next. That's a lot to balance. You said last time you wished there was more than one villain. How's three? (laughs) Well, let's find out. Give them the plot and we'll get into it. Can't they just push pause on the podcast? Go watch the movie. It'll be shorter than me trying to summarize all the various... Truly, it has more plot threads than a spider web. But I will try. And I will try to keep it brief. Peter Parker seems to have it all. Spider-Man is loved across New York and his girlfriend Mary Jane is starring on Broadway. He's prepared to propose to his childhood love when the worm turns and Peter is attacked by his best friend Harry Osborn. Harry blames Peter, or more to the point Spider-Man, for the death of Harry's father Norman Osborn. And last movie, Harry found his father's stash of gear and weapons and subjected himself to his father's super soldier serum, giving Harry super strength and reflexes, so he engages Peter in a fair fight, superhero to superhero. But Peter uses a web to clothesline his friend and gives Harry a case of amnesia, unaware of Peter's alter ego. And speaking of ego, things are strained between Peter and Mary Jane. In truth, Mary Jane sucks in her play, and in this movie, and when she needs the comfort of her boyfriend, all he can talk about is Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Things get worse when Spider-Man is given the key to the city for saving the life of police captain Stacy's daughter Gwen, and on stage Peter reenacts his upside-down kiss that he shared with MJ, this time with Gwen, making MJ very jealous. In need of a friend, MJ turns to Harry, and the two seem ready to rekindle their years-old romance. But in two other plots, a new criminal is terrorizing New York. Escaped convict Flint Marco finds himself superpowered when he runs into the middle of a science experiment, and now he has the power to control sand, and his entire body is made up of sand, and he's using this power to, what else, rob banks, trying to get money for his estranged sick daughter. And more than just his usual civic duty, Peter has a personal grudge when Captain Stacy calls him and Aunt May into the station to tell them they've discovered Marco is the true killer of Peter's Uncle Ben, not the hood from the first film. If this isn't enough reason for Peter to be angry, Peter's anger is amplified by a strange alien symbiote that crash-landed in a meteor and has crawled all over Peter's spider suit. Is it me or is this coming across like bad fanfic? Keep going. It's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) 
Harry's memory returns and he forces Mary Jane to break up with the wall crawler as psychological warfare against the webhead. So Peter retaliates against Mary Jane by taking Gwen to the jazz bar where Mary Jane now works as a singing waitress. And Peter puts on a show-stopping dance number. It's gone from fanfic into Turn Off the Dark. Additionally, Peter confronts Harry, and in the fight, Harry throws a pumpkin bomb at the webhead, and Peter throws it right back, disfiguring Harry's face. Finally, Spider-Man faces off against the Sandman and seemingly kills the dusty evildoer by flooding him with water and running him down a grate. But this makes Peter realize the suit is making him do bad things. So he goes to a church and claws the outfit off, where the suit falls on Eddie Brock, another character I've yet to mention, wannabe bugle photographer who faked a shot of Spider-Man breaking the law. Peter exposed Brock's deception and Brock lost his job, but now bonded with the alien symbiote, Eddie knows Peter's secrets and is out for revenge. Now labeled Venom, Eddie partners with Sandman, who's still on the loose, to squash the Spider-Man. Sandman agrees, and the two kidnap Mary Jane to call out Peter. Peter asks for Harry's help in rescuing Mary Jane, and the new goblin refuses, so Peter goes in alone and is about to be killed, but Harry races in and saves his frenemy. The two together rescue Mary Jane, but Venom kills Harry with his own glider, and Peter then uses loud noise to separate the symbiote from Eddie and throws a pumpkin bomb to destroy the alien goo, but Eddie jumps to save it, dying in the process. Peter then confronts Sandman, who explains that he never really meant to shoot Uncle Ben. Spider-Man learns the superpower of forgiveness and allows Sandman to float away on the breeze while Peter goes to reconcile with Mary Jane at the Jazz Club. The two embrace and mourn their dead friend as credits roll. Eh, not so bad. There's a lot of characters in this. I didn't even mention J. Jonah Jameson and... Barely mentioned Aunt May. There's a lot going on in this movie. Stuart, you said the last movie it was too slow-paced, not enough going on. Not a problem. <laughs> the pendulum has swung. It definitely has. And I'm not going to say that it's all for the worst of things. Yes, this movie moves in a way that I am more expectant of. And as long as they can keep the humor and the drama that they've done when they're at their best... I think it works. It's good that things have changed for Peter. First and foremost, I tend to turn off on a movie when I see a main character suffer too much. And it's nice that we start this movie with Peter being celebrated. Spider-Man is a hero. They got him up on Times Square Jumbotron. Stan Lee comes up, mugs, and... Nuff said. The classic Stan Lee closer there. The whole city likes him. It's a nice turn of events. I don't know if it's a nice turn of events. I would like a balance. I don't want to see him as a martyr. I don't want to see New York having a straight up boner for Spider-Man. We're back to the Greek choir here. Like, here is how you're supposed to feel. Just like New York here and wave your toys that you just bought. Put on your Spider-Man mask just like the little kids all celebrating him. I would like to see something more tempered here. You know, is he a threat? Are there people like, let's see that debate going on with the citizens of New York. Not let's see everyone rah-rah Spider-Man. I agree with you, Jacob. Again, coming from a Spider-Man comics background, one of the great things about Spider-Man is he serves at his own detriment. And despite being a hero and saving the city and saving countless citizens, there are small pockets of people who think he's good. But by and large, J. Jonah Jameson's press against him has convinced the city that he is a masked menace. And to see him on top of the world, while I kind of like it 
for the character, but, I mean, we mentioned at the last podcast, these movies kind of have some sad endings. You put the character on top, he has nowhere to go but down. Well, there's problems here. I mean, the problems are ironic that the starlet that he is partnered with, who has always put her own success above his own, is now actually getting a drubbing from the critics. She's getting the kind of abuse he used to get in the press. That's a funny turn of events, too. I like that. Of course, he doesn't pay any attention or even realize that. (laughs) Why is that? You know, the movie starts off early with him making the point of making the play on time. That was a big thing with the last movie. Well, now she's in the biggest production she's ever been in. She's third build. It's her moment, and he is there to support it, moony-eyed and singing along with every word. Is she bad? I don't know. When she comes down the staircase and does that old-fashioned number, I kind of like it. I mean, you know, it's not a great performance, but how bad are we supposed to interpret it? Is it that she's being unfairly persecuted by critics, or is it that she's just kind of not that great? Well, if you remember the last movie, every time we saw her on stage, she flubbed a line. 100% of the time, we saw her on stage. And this singing's no great shakes. I take it as she's bad. I'm surprised that she got this far. She does end up as a soap opera actress. So that (laughs) that should give you your clue right there, what her abilities are. Yeah, is this Dunst's real voice? That is Dunst's real voice. Is it? Yeah. It doesn't feel like they've done anything to it. It actually feels like this is what she would sound like. And yeah, I wouldn't buy the record. It's serviceable, I guess, when you go to Broadway. Little pitchy dog. Yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Simon. I guess I'll be Paula. It was fine. (laughs) Maybe not for Broadway. Maybe if I not paid $150 to sit there and watch it. But you get that weird reaction shot. Two girls leave the theaters and they're like, it was not bad. You know, like, I just didn't know what to take of this. Was it that she's Stunk up the room and everyone was trying to pretend that she didn't. I don't think Peter thought she was bad. No. I don't know that he could see her as bad. He's in love with her. I agree with that completely. And her firing, I think that the directors thought she was good too. But the critics thought she was bad. Yes. And so they had to make a swift reaction in order to keep the play going. I don't think she's meant to stink up the room, but we're certainly not supposed to be impressed either. I think that's where I fell. I wouldn't want to pay to see it, but I also didn't think, oh my god, I can't bear to listen to another note of this. I thought it was weird that she's obviously the star of this play, but she's third billing on the marquee. Yeah, I don't know that she's the star star, but it's an important part. Well, she's, she's got the opening musical stars. scene. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen yeah. a lot of musicals, but usually, you know, Sound of Music, there's your star <laughs> right there. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark starts with Peter Parker now. <laughs> yeah. Sound of Music, Turn Off the Dark. Yes, there's our references for musicals. <laughs> Maybe because I'm a guy, I'm a little less sympathetic towards Mary Jane here. Like, she knows what she's getting into. Like, that's what the whole last film was about, is that, hey, if you want to be with this guy... You're going to have to say, go get him, Tiger, and cook your own dinner and eat by yourself. Like, that's the game you're in if you're going for him. Yeah, but I think that it's not his physical absence that bothers her as much as it's his emotional absence. Even when he's there, he's not there. The police scanner is always on, and all he wants to talk about is himself or his alter ego Spider-Man more accurately. He is as infatuated with Spider-Man as the rest of New York is. That's got to be hard. Yeah, but I kind of wanted her to get it. I just liked her so much in the last movie. I don't mind that she's getting a little bit back this time. And you know what? I'm finding I'm liking them as a couple again. When they are hanging out in the park, 
Mark and laying on a web together, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you kids are working it out. And I don't even feel like she's not being mature about it. She is trying to understand that he is Spider-Man and give him the room and not bringing her problems to him. She doesn't tell him that she gets fired. She doesn't want to bring him down. I don't see her as punishing or a nagging wife. Oh, no, 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 no. She tries. She tries to talk about her reviews, and he's like, oh, but it's just like Spider-Man. She gets shut out every time she needs someone to lean on. He's there for everyone but her. Yeah, I think so. But I'm saying she's more mature about understanding that. I disagree. I think she's petulant and drama-filled, just like she was the in that very first movie. She is sullen. She doesn't not talk to him because she doesn't want to burden him. She doesn't talk to him because she's going to just give him, like, the silent treatment and put out her pouty lip and then go cheat on him with his best friend. Honestly, I do like them in these opening scenes. I do think it's sweet when they're on the web. I want to see these two together when this movie starts. And I did last time. My problems with Dunst in Spider-Man 2 only really crystallized when watching for this review. When watching it in the past, Mary Jane and Peter Parker went together like peanut butter and jelly. They were married in the comics for almost 20 years at this point. So they needed to get together. I wanted to see them get together. I wanted to see them get married. And so seeing them in these opening scenes, I do like them together. But as this movie goes on... Whew, do I turn on her? Oh, interesting. I turn on both of them. We'll get into it, but they make some bad decisions in this film. All I'm saying is wherever they go later in the story, my feelings about them are restored to where we were at at the end of Spider-Man 1. I'll agree for these scenes that, yes, I do like them. But this was before the reviews came in. This was after her big night. This was, she just had her glory moment. They're both on top of the world. I also really enjoy seeing where Aunt May is at the start of this. You know, she downsized. She got out of the house. She's in the apartment. She seems genuinely happy. And she wants them to get married, too. She gives up her modest little ring so that he can marry Jane in the way that she and Ben did. That seems like a nice way to recall Ben. Nicer than what they're going to do later. Yeah, we get to catch up with all the old cast, including Harry, who you want to talk about economical storytelling. We are introduced to Harry stepping out of the goblin chamber. Actually, he's at the play. He went up with the flowers. But yes, this is the where he's at emotionally. How much time do we know was between two and three storytelling wise? I'm going to guess it's only been a couple weeks. A few months, actually. This is winter. The last one was summer. So maybe six months. Okay, six months. Harry and Peter should have sat down. They're not at a good place. They've had six months to sit down and talk about things, and that hasn't happened. And that just seems off to me that we see Harry, he's kind of stalking Peter, looking down on him at the play from the balcony. You say it's economical. We get there quickly. I just don't know if it's satisfying to me. I don't know. At this point, I'm with it. I'm kind of liking the pace. I like that Harry's been plotting, training, learning his father's secrets. I mean, you don't discover your father has a secret lair and then immediately jump in the gas chamber. Why does he want to be his father? I mean, I could understand. I don't really understand, but I will allow the explanation to be that he thinks Spider-Man killed his dad. At that point, he thought his dad was innocent. If he suddenly found out that his dad was the terrorist that had been throwing bombs around... That almost killed Mary Jane, the girl that he loved... And himself, I mean, maybe that would make me turn against my impression of my father and like Spider-Man more. It could have gone either way. I think he's not drinking enough for me to believe that he'd get in that gas chamber. I mean, the only way you'd do it is if he were drunk and angry. And 
he looks relatively sober. I took it as just the buildup of hatred and resentment over the death of his father. And yet, the two didn't have a very good relationship, but their last moment together was one of possible reconciliation. His name is Harry Osborne. You killed his father. Prepare to die. Sure. We need something to happen with this character. It was the best hook at the end of the movie. I would say the best hook of the whole entire Spider-Man 2. I want to see what he's going to do. Evil or good, let's see it now. And we do. I mean, he goblins up in the first 10 minutes of the film. Love that. And I love the fact he didn't put on the stupid mask. No, he got a ski mask. Like the extreme sports goblin on his <laughs> snowboard and his paintball mask. And he has a sword. It's a lightsaber, actually. Yes. <laughs> it made him look a little Hayden Christensen, didn't it? <laughs> yes, it did. I kept getting that vibe. But I kind of like the sword. I dig it more than what Defoe had to wear in the first movie. And I want to see him do whatever he's going to do in the tradition of Defoe. I agree. This is an upgrade to the Defoe outfit. Mm. The snowboard's a little silly. I would have preferred him to go with the classic goblin glider, but I kind of like that he's in something that's more padded suit and I'm just protecting my vision eyewear versus the I'm wearing a gargoyle mask. It plays better for me. Is And I like the vibe of it. I mean, when we get into the first fight, which we're going to get to in a little bit, it really works for me, this new suit. I like his wonderful toys. I guess it's the snowboard that throws me off. I'm fine for the more military-type suit. It's that damn snowboard and the lightsaber. Question, and this is, again, coming from a comic newbie, but I have heard him called Hobgoblin. Is he Green Goblin or Hobgoblin? He is Green Goblin or New Goblin. In the comics, there's been... At least three Green Goblins. When the time I was reading, there were three. There was Norman Osborn, which happened just about as you saw. Mm -hmm. He died on his own glider, and Harry Osborn was his son and was Peter's roommate and did inherit everything and was swearing vengeance against Spider-Man for the death of his father and eventually did find one of his father's secret lairs and became the second Green Goblin out to kill Spider-Man. This would go on for many, many years. Harry would get amnesia from time to time and forget he's the Green Goblin and forget Spider-Man's true identity and then remember once again and go back on a rampage. And So I can blame the comic for this storyline. Okay. Yes. And sometimes the two of them would team up against a bigger villain. Okay. So this is not out of character the way he's portrayed in this movie. No, this is... Right out of the comics, eventually Harry Osborn would die. The goblin juice poisoned him. What juice? Like the gas he inhaled here. Oh, okay. And there was a third green goblin who was a psychiatrist who worked and found out about Norman Osborn's secret stash and became a green goblin. Hobgoblin then is someone who also found another one of Norman's hideouts and dyed the suit orange and became an assassin. And then there's Demigoblin. Okay. Don't get me all into this. I won't. Harry Osborn is not Hobgoblin, but he was the Green Goblin. The toy I bought of him, the $250 hot toy, says New Goblin. Okay. I just wanted a name to go with what he was. New Goblin works for me. And yes, as I've just alluded, a lot of what we see with New Goblin, right out of the comics, which lets me give it a big mulligan. Including the lightsaber. I don't recall him having a lightsaber. Okay. Toyetic. That's why we got Venom. That's why we have a lightsaber in this. <laughs> When Harry's in that outfit doing with the pumpkin bombs and everything, man, 
I was so excited because this is a great fight. I love this Peter Harry fight. What are you talking about? This is fan film level special effects here. This is like, I could see the green screen popping through effects. This is awful looking. No, this is the best the effects have looked at three film. No, no. In one, they were passable. In two, they were kind of bad. Here, I am really impressed with how good everything looks. I don't know what film you watched. I watched Spider-Man 3. No, this chase scene is awful looking when he's squeezing between and building. It's just, it's awful. It's so obviously like green screened in there and not done very well. This is not a well done scene. I'm sorry, Arnie. It's not a bad scene either. I think that it's right in the middle. I, I think you're being a little bit overly harsh. I mean, it's not the best fight that we've ever gotten in a Spider-Man movie, admittedly. But you're invested in what's going to happen, right? It's happening so early, you know that it's going to resolve in a way that's going to change everything. I was not expecting amnesia. I honestly thought when this fight ends, he's dead. I kind of wish that had been what happened. Not yet. If he was going to be killed by Spider-Man, it had to happen with the black outfit on. Yes. Right here, I kind of like the amnesia plot for the comic reasons I cited. Is this where Franco gets, like, the reputation of being a stoner? Because when he's amnesic, like, that guy, he must have smoked a lot of pot because he's got a big old smile on his face. (laughs) Not a care in the world. He's painting. Hey, buddies. How's it going? Thanks for coming to the hospital. Like, Pineapple Express and your highness may have helped with that reputation. (laughs) Yes, but I'm with you, Jacob. He stops being a threatening character. I don't like amnesia storylines, really, ever. I think that they're hard to do and not very satisfying. They feel soap opera to me. I mean, how many amnesia cases are really documented in the world? How often does this happen? I feel like this is something that only happens in movies that get desperate. But... I do like the tension that it sets up, which is that at some point we know he is going to revert back to being evil. But for the moment, the reset button has been hit. He is the kind guy that we knew in the first film. And much like Mary Jane, in that reset button also being hit, I'm liking the spirit of returning to the first movie. I still think the first movie is stronger than the second one. I'm encouraged by these early setups. If I hadn't read a Spider-Man comic, I might have stood up during the amnesiac scene and gone, this is some bullshit, and walked out. That's how I was feeling, because I I was not familiar with this whole amnesia thing in the comics, and that's how I felt, Arnie, so good job. (laughs) That is how I would feel if I didn't know that this is not just something that happened to Harry once, it happens to Harry again and again and again. I forget, I remember, I forget, I remember. Because of that, I'm able to give it this one, too. If you haven't noticed, being pretty forgiving with this film. But I was giving it this because of its roots, because I could acknowledge that. And I like the fact that we get to see something we've never really gotten to see in three films. Harry and Peter as good friends. We get to see them playing ball, hanging out. Yeah, I agree. And with the idea that we know at any second that could shatter and it could go back to the way things are. It's good suspense, even though it's terrible storytelling. And speaking of terrible storytelling, a comet just happens to hit the ground. Also right out of the comics, an alien space spooge that becomes a black costume. 
Now, what I recall, there was this huge crossover, Secret Wars, where it was made to promote a toy line, basically. Talk about toyetic. Yes. And that's when you got Spider-Man in the black suit. And then they came up with the whole story that because he just finds it and it ends up being an alien and turns into Venom. That is correct, right? Yep. With the exception of how it is found, it is almost identical to the movie here. They're on an alien world fighting each other. Spider-Man's suits get torn, and he runs out of web cartridges, and he's like, what good's a Spider-Man without his web? And somebody's like, hey, Spider-Man, there's a machine over here that will make you a new costume, but with the old Parker luck, he goes to the wrong machine and goes over to a machine that spits out an alien spooge. (laughs) He thinks it's a new costume that automatically generates webs and can camouflage as any clothes he can imagine, so he doesn't even need to change costume anymore. He's got this mighty morphin suit on, but... When he returns to Earth, he wakes up very tired every morning, and he finds out that the suit has been taking him out on nightly violent anti-crime sprees, and has just been feeding off his spider strength, and with the help of Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four, they get it off of him with a sonic gun. Mr. Fantastic realizes, hey, this thing doesn't like noise. And then it comes back, it has fallen in love with Peter. I'm not kidding. (laughs) It can't find any human host that has that spider power, so it rebonds with him. Peter eventually has to pull it off in a church, and we think we've seen the end of it. Until many, many issues later, when a mysterious villain with the ability to bypass Spider-Man's spider sense starts attacking, and in issue 300, it's revealed to be Venom. The symbiote hasn't gone away. It found a new host, Eddie Brock, a former Daily Bugle photographer. Again, very close to what the movie we're seeing here, just some slight differences. Obviously, they don't want Spider-Man to meet Mr. Fantastic on a foreign planet, so they have a meteorite. Yeah, this is stupid. This is dumb. Like, it's the blob. Yes, it is, but it's just out of nowhere. That's my problem. Like, the blob turns into a monster that gets fought the whole movie. This, it's like, we gotta get Venom. Um, let's have an asteroid hit. Like, why not have his professor accidentally make some weird spooge in the lab at the college? This is so happenstance. Just happened to land next to Parker while he's making out with Mary Jane on a web and crawls on his moped. And what you're suggesting, Jacob, wouldn't be too far off. In the Ultimate Comics, Venom was created by a scientist working with Peter's own father on a suit to cure cancer, and it went wrong and became a suit. So it had nothing to do with outer space travel. The Ultimate Universe is far more science-based and less fantastical. And so they could have gone with the Ultimate Venom origin instead no, we're just going to have a meteorite hit. Nobody's going to hear it, and it's just going to happen to get on the back of not just anyone's moped, but Spider-Man's moped. You know what? I don't have a problem with wherever this comes from. If it comes from deep space, that's fine. It comes from deep space. If it's made in a lab, great. It's made in a lab. The whole point of it is it's going to be this sentient ooze that turns Spider-Man into a villain. I'm down for this storyline, so I don't care where it comes from, but... I want an explanation at some point in the narrative. And I think a failing of the story is he goes to Connors like, hey, can you tell me what this is? And he's like, well, 
okay, and don't get any on you. And No, this is not how this should happen. There should be an astronomer teacher. You know, if you're going to have it come from outer space, the expert from outer space investigates the meteor crash. He finds the bit of information from that. He tracks it back to Parker. You don't have Parker take it to the teacher. I'm okay with whatever the ooze is as long as you tell me why it's here. I don't know why they keep insisting on having Connors in this story when he really doesn't do anything. For Spider-Man 4 where he becomes the villain. They are still establishing him to become the lizard. But the other thing is, if it wasn't for Connor, I mean, you say they could have had some other scientist. I at least like the fact that Connors is established as having a rapport with Peter from the last movie. I like the continuity of bringing him back. And it's Connors who explains to the non-comic book reading audience, hey, this thing bonds. It may be hard to part with. Hey, it's going to amplify whatever's in you already, especially aggression. Dylan Baker here has the thankless role of all of this exposition to explain to the audience what the hell it is. You don't need to tell me that it bonds. We get that from their interaction when he's wearing the suit and trying to remove it. What you have to tell me is, where did it come from? What's the point of it? What is it here to do? It's completely random that it comes to Earth, right? The takeaway from Spider-Man the movie, not the comic, is that it just so happened to fall here, and it just so happened to be near Peter. It could have just as easily gotten on one of the girls from Sex and the City. Yes, But you know what? I'm going to say the first time I watched this, I understand this isn't good. I understand this is convenient happenstance. I understand. I'm going to give the film this because this film has so much to do. If this is what it needs to do to get Venom to Earth and to get Venom on Spider-Man, fine. Let's do it. Move on. That's a failing if your script is so overstuffed with things that you just have to rifle through all the plot points. Hey, Meteor from Space gets on Spider-Man that aren't convincing. You rewrite that script. You take one of the three villains out. You do something. You change it. Well, never ignore the fact that Raimi didn't want this villain here at all, and that becomes evident. When we finally get to the other villain, I don't feel like there's much of a relationship between Venom and Sandman. It does feel like one is Raimi's movie he's trying to make, and one is Marvel's movie that they're instilling upon it. Let me tell you what I thought going into this, and I really believe this is what would happen. I thought this movie would be the story of Black Suit Spider-Man, which is kind of how it went in the comics. I thought that the villain here would not be Venom. I knew Venom was in that Comic-Con teaser, but I really thought that that Comic-Con teaser might be the end of the film. Like, wait for the next one. You know, we were in the age of The Matrix 2 and 3 and the Lord of the Rings movies. I thought Peter would get this black suit and through his killing of Sandman in combat, realize this suit is bad, need to get it off of him. He also have things going on with the goblin. I knew that would happen. And at the end of the movie, Peter would finally break free of the black suit and be free of it. And it would find Eddie and it would roll on into the sequel, just like Green Goblin finding the outfits last time. I had a similar feeling, but I thought we'd get much more Venom. I thought Peter kills Sandman within the first 40 minutes, realizes his suit's no good, gets rid of it, and now Venom, for the rest of the film, would be the villain. I mean, if you're using Venom, come on, we get like 10 minutes of him here. I thought he'd play a much bigger role. I thought that they'd save him for the next one, and I think that that might have been still the right move. And I will say that the writer of this wanted to split this into two movies. He really wanted to find a way to take everything that happened here and spread it out over two films. And what stymied him was he could not find a good midpoint climax to end a movie on. 
but his instinct was two movies. My instinct was two movies. I'm going to say we were both right, and making this one movie leads to stuff like this. I'm completely fine with the pace in which it unfolds. I do have a problem as we get to the end when he makes the alliance with Sandman. But if this story is about revenge, at this point, the lesson that's being learned here is not to allow your dark side to overtake you. They make that point many times and not very subtly. I think that we do need to see it slowly corrupt Peter more slowly than I guess we get. Well, if all this isn't enough, we have another villain, Sandman, introduced pretty early. Now, Thomas Hayden Church, an actor who I've liked since Wings... Loved him in Sideways. Sideways made me think he was more than Lowell Mather. I'm right there with you, Arnie. Those are my two references for him. I never thought somebody could jump right off the pages of the comic book as much as J.K. Simmons does as J. Jonah Jameson until I saw Thomas Hayden Church in that t-shirt as the Sandman. The t-shirt is perfect. He looks perfect in it. The hair, everything. I can't believe he's born and not drawn. I noticed Church does this thing throughout most of the film with his mouth. He grits his teeth and pushes out this bottom lip and just this weird facial expression. Is that from the comics? Not so much. <laughs> I, I was just trying to figure out why he kept making that face. Raimi likes actors that give good face. <laughs> okay. I only know him from Sideways, but he is great fun in that movie. He's a funny wild card. And I think this guy is a good balance between the way that Raimi likes to cast his villains and probably what Marvel was kind of hoping for. I mean, it is another father figure. He's literally a father. All his crimes are committed to help his child. And he's connected to Peter's father figure. So he has some ties to the way that Melina and Willem Dafoe were cast to be the paternal conflicts of the other two movies. But at the same time, he's buff. He's got a physicality that those two guys don't have, and he's a criminal, and I feel like he could really do some damage in a fist fight without anything magical happening to him. It's a good balance, and I think he was the right choice to play this character. I'm kind of done with the father and son thing. Like, third film, we're still doing this game? Yes, but he's not a father figure himself. It's a totally different conflict, but he is a father. Not only that, but he messes with the way that we think of Ben. He is the ultimate mind screw when it comes to Spider-Man's origin here. Hate that. We have this totally arbitrary, like, alien that lands on a meteorite, and then we have this, like, super intraconnected characters with the Sandman and Peter Parker and Ben, and, like, I don't get this film. Either it's totally arbitrary, or it's this really contrived relationship between characters. I get it. It's two films that have been fused together that never should have been. And you know what I'm gonna say that I can't believe? I prefer Marvel's to Raimi's, because if Raimi's plan is to go back and go, you know that thief at the wrestling ring? Even though he only took one bag, he had a partner, and the partner killed Uncle Ben, and then just the thief took Uncle Ben's car, leaving the partner just standing there with a second bag that miraculously appeared to run off and then confess in prison. I hate that they had to tie this in to Uncle Ben's story. I do not mind that they want to change Amazing Fantasy 15. I'm not ever going to be the person who stands here and goes, the comics cannot be changed if they are changed for the right reasons, for the better. But this seems like a desperate ploy to force a personal connection for Peter. And 
God, we're, we're still on Uncle Ben. In the first movie, Uncle Ben died. Okay, that's great. I loved it. In the second movie, he's still, like, confessing to Aunt May, who can't stop talking about Uncle Ben two years later. Now we're finding the real killer. I'm sorry, is the real killer J.R. Ewing? That's where I feel I'm at. I said at the beginning with Spider-Man, it's a character whose origin stories I really like, but they just keep sticking to it. It's the same thing on repeat. He's down on his luck. Nothing good ever happens to him. Everything's about his damn uncle. Where's some progress? I need this to go somewhere different than the last two films. You're not wrong, but it seems to be the story that Raimi wants to tell. So maybe it's not bad that this is Raimi's last hurrah. Maybe this was all that he had to bring to the project, and other directors would bring their passions about Spider-Man and tell those new stories. But Raimi is not going to let this go. And I'm with you, Arnie. I feel like this is an overstep. It's reminding me of, dare I bring it up, Scream 3, a movie I recommended, but a movie that got into extreme plot complications and contusions, trying to go back and say, oh, the murder you thought you saw isn't really the murder you thought you saw. And been trying to redraft motivations and all that, it really gets itself twisted. But let's follow this train here. Peter became Spider-Man because of MJ. He was standing there taking her picture, but he became the altruistic superhero because of what happened to Ben. I stood back and let a guilty man get away, and it cost me the man that I loved, and I will never do it again... And now that has been eradicated. Actually, even if I had stopped that guy, it never would have stopped Ben from being killed. That is horrible. It is enough to make you realize you could do something radically different now. And maybe Venom gives you the option for him to rethink his whole position. If he stopped being a superhero and started using his powers for selfish reasons then I guess that that works. But to me, this means that he can no longer justify having to be a heroic savior. We'll get to the black suit. Marco, we get to meet his wife and daughter. And I like that they're trying to make him somewhat sympathetic. I really do like this estranged wife, estranged daughter dynamic. If it were ever to pay off. If they were ever to show up again, he goes on a crime spree to steal money to protect his daughter. Where's it going? Like, uh, do we ever see a surgery? What has she even got? She got to breathe from an oxygen tube and she's on crutches. Again, it's kind of like when Doc Ock was stealing money to buy lab supplies. How do you actually take and fence this money? It's not a way to make it sympathetic. It's the lie you tell yourself to say, hey, we're going to make him humanized when in fact you're not. You're making it absurd. I just think it's trying to show us that everything is subjective and there's gradients. There's not just good and evil. There's a sliding scale. Our best hero will become gray. Our villain will become gray. The only person who's all black is Venom. Here's my take on this, and it becomes more obvious as the film goes on, especially by the end with the Sandman. We've talked about 9-11 a lot. That's what the war on terror had become by this point. It wasn't, we're getting those terrorists, now we're like, eh, we're losing a lot of troops. Maybe we're not doing the right thing. Let me take it to a finer point, because I think you're really on to something here. In 2004, we were rallying behind a 
city that had been hurt because we were going to war and we needed to all be superheroes to fight the battle with evil. By 2007, a large part of this country felt we had been misled into using our anger to take revenge on someone that wasn't actually the person that attacked us. And that, yes, we are now getting a lesson about how resorting to anger and using our power for revenge can come back and bite us. I think that, yes, this is a continuation of the 9-11 themes and that Venom actually fits it perfectly. I will give this film massive props, though, for its special effects. You and Jacob... I dare you to argue with me on this one. Arnie, I'm not. As much as I hated the special effects at the beginning of this film, the scene where Sandman becomes the Sandman, specifically where you see the ripples in the sand and it begins to form, and I think the music they use really helps build that up and does build him up as a tragic character. This hand made of sand tries to grasp the locket of the daughter and it falls through and then it rebuilds. This is a great looking scene. I totally agree. I don't know Sandman the character. I don't know what his powers are. I thought he he put you to sleep. (laughs) I had no idea what Sandman could do. He's manipulating Earth. He actually, everything he touches on the ground. When he punches people, I wouldn't think that would be very effective, but he can actually fuse it until it's a hard rock, right? He can be any element of the Earth that he wants to be. He could be mud if he wanted to. No, he can only be sand. If you get him wet, he becomes mud and that weakens him. Well, then if a pile of sand punched me, I wouldn't think that that would hurt that much. It might get in my eyes and irritate me, but some droplets and I'll be okay. But it's like a sand bag. It's tightly packed sand. Okay. I think the special effects are cool. I think the powers, the motivations. I'm having similar problems that I have with all three of these Raimi villains. I don't know if Raimi cares about villains that much. What he's here to do is tell Spider-Man stories, and he's pretty good at that. They're the best things about these movies. But his villains, they kind of suck. I like the visuals. I like the powers. But yeah, he's just not a very compelling bad guy and he's kind of a sad sack i like thomas hayden church in sideways but here man he's very one note i don't understand why he killed uncle ben i don't understand how committing crimes is helping his daughter i don't know now that he has these powers what he hopes to do except what steal more money this is all he can think to do just stealing money as sand this seems small what's he supposed to do enter a sand castle competition and win a couple hundred bucks I don't know. I think that he could probably make more money talking to Oprah. You know, you're now a freak. You can exploit that for money. It's like, oh, I got magically transformed. I must be evil. Raimi's explanations for why the transformations make people bad guys are weak, consistently weak. Furthermore... This is the person that was there when Uncle Ben died. He was there at that moment where Peter learned with great power comes great responsibility. And I complained in the last two films, the villains, they were just insane. They didn't have to make a choice. Now you have a villain that's not insane. He just, he has this great power, I guess, turning into sand, if if you could call it that. But now you have a villain where you could explore that choice. That I have these powers, I could use it, like you said, to go on Oprah to earn money for my daughter, or I could go rob a bank. And having him as contrived as it is that he was there at that same moment where Peter realized that life lesson, you could have had those parallels going on here. But no, they don't. I'm also marveled at how bad these scientists are. Well, they're working at like 10 o'clock at night. They fall in that pit, they're like, oh, it's probably a bird, who cares? Who cares? Worst scientists ever. (laughs) 
You need to care. Science is about being exact, controlling all the elements so that you get the result that you want. It's not, oh, a bird might be in there. It really doesn't matter. These were the graveyard shift scientists. I mean, it was late at night. Why are they doing this experiment late at night? Was there something where sunlight couldn't be there? I don't know. The effect is great. I love the scene. I wouldn't change anything about the way it looks from a technical standpoint. Everything about the setup is, like a lot of this movie, happenstance and laziness. I said Thomas Hayden Church was one note. Jacob, you said you liked this music. I mentioned in the last podcast how the composer switched away from Elfman and to Christopher Young and... This score is bad. The music for this movie is bad. It is lacking in depth and subtlety and too brassy with the instrumentation used. Ooh, this music, I hated it the very first time I saw it. Well, let me clarify. I liked the buildup, but as soon as you knew he turned evil, it went into the evil overture. Da, 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 and that I hated, yeah. Just to backtrack up here, did you guys love the music in Spider-Man 1? I don't feel like it was Elfman at his best. I don't feel like the music here is much worse or better than what was done before. It is kind of is serviceable. I liked it well enough. I didn't think he had a great theme. No. But I did like the way the music made me feel during the big web-swinging scenes and all of that. And here it's actually making you grit teeth. Yes. Oh, okay. Just like Thomas Hayden Church. I'm sticking out my lip. It didn't make me grit teeth. I thought it was fine. Most of the music is fine. The Sandman theme is the worst. And the problem is, it's like eight notes that they just repeat every time Sandman's on the screen. And you may not think that's often, but it is if you're paying attention to the music. It is if you're seeing it five times. (laughs) (laughs) Strangely enough, the black suit theme has grown on me. But it's still not very good. The only time I notice the music is at the Spider-Man key celebration. They play the old cartoon theme as a marching band. And giving him that key is Gwen Stacy. Who is Gwen Stacy? Can someone help me out with this? In the early days of Marvel Comics, there were really two loves of Peter's life. Gwen Stacy, who was kind of more studious and a little bit more down-to-earth and reserved, daughter of a police officer, Captain Stacy. Okay. And Mary Jane, the fun party girl redhead. Mm. They played off each other back and forth for quite a while. Who's he going to date? You know, he would date both or date neither and all this back and forth. And then Green Goblin killed Gwen Stacy. And it was in the same issue where the Green Goblin died. He threw Gwen Stacy off of a bridge Peter webbed her to save her, but her back was broken, and he lives with more guilt. Did he break it with his web, or did it break during the fall? What happened? But that was the death of Gwen Stacy, and in Marvel Comics, there have really been only two characters. It used to be three, but only two characters who have died and stayed dead. There was Bucky from Captain America, but he's now back. There's Uncle Ben. He hasn't come back yet. Mm. And there's Gwen Stacy, and she has stayed dead. A clone did show up, yes, but it went away pretty quickly. Because it's comics. <laughs> okay. I will say, though, I think Joe Quesada, who was editor-in-chief of Marvel at this time, tried many times to bring back Gwen Stacy. 
And I think that this movie may have been trying to open a door for the return of Gwen Stacy. I wonder if the movie we're reviewing Friday is going to force that door open because she hasn't been in comics since the 70s. Okay, so what we're getting on Friday is not Mary Jane, but Gwen. Yes, they take the redheads and dye them blonde. They take the blondes and dye them red. Oh, interesting. During the whole key to the city ceremony, Peter reenacts the upside down kiss, this time with Gwen. I don't know if I could blame Peter here. And MJ calls it out, you know, who was kissing her, Spider-Man or Peter. And she's an actress. I'm sure she's locked lips on stage before. You got a public persona. You got to play that up. You got to market yourself. You know, if she would have kissed a little better on stage, she wouldn't have lost her job, maybe. (laughs) I just think, didn't she try to reenact the upside down kiss with John last movie? Like, it's some sacred thing, but it's never be recreated unless I do it. Well, it's that it's public, you know, it's that the whole world saw it. But I think you guys are choosing to see it in a more negative light than it really is. She's feeling vulnerable, feeling her worst, him kissing another girl and really enjoying it. And she's thinking that she's being pushed out. They want to play that up. I don't think it ever really gets resolved. It's kind of like Peter's a douche before he even gets the black suit. It could have played better, but they don't want to do that here. The worst part of it all for me is that little kid, because everybody's chanting, kiss him, kiss him. But then there's the one kid who's like the moral compass. No, don't do it, Spider-Man. I'm like, oh, my God, I hate it. That's as bad to me as when they cut to the dog. No, it is the Greek choir. I'll say it. This film is full of it because maybe they don't trust their audience to be smart enough to draw their own conclusions here. It's telling us what to feel, what to think. It didn't offend me. I think that New Yorkers play a big part in the scene. I think it's by design, but I let it roll right off me. The fact that it was one person, and sure, you can always go with the the kid was of that age of kissing girls is gross. You could write it that way. But the fact is, that's not what it was doing. It was there to play to the lowest common denominator of the audience and that offends me okay well i like the idea if you're gonna make a movie all about doubles then this seems to be like one of the better ideas for doing that there's two spider-mans the red and blue and the black and now there are two love interests but i'm not really getting that Gwen is a love interest here. I get it because, well, she smiles at him and he tutors her and Mary Jane is jealous. But help me out. In this movie here, do you get the sense that she's a rival? I do from the scenes we get. I don't know if Peter sees it that way. He's so self-involved. But she is certainly set up to be the next love interest, isn't she? I mean, we know that everybody's contract is up at the end of this. If McGuire comes back and Raimi comes back and Kirsten Dunst doesn't, well, we got Bryce Dallas Howard here. She'll do. Oh, interesting. I didn't think about it in those terms, but you're right. That probably was hedging of bets. I'll also say that I found out in my research for this, she was to be the damsel in distress at the end. Kirsten Dunst was like, oh, thank God I don't have to do that again. I don't want to do it. And it was going to be Gwen Stacy who Venom took because they had both kind of dated her that movie. And she would be the one that Peter had to rescue at the end. That's perfect, because one of her earliest scenes here is that she falls out of a building and is dangling and Spider-Man comes to help her. The damsel in the stress is in the same situation. You want to make it the same lady. I think that was the right decision. Sticking with Gwen, I found this character hard to get a pin on. She's a model and she's a science student. Yeah. That's what I don't get. She's like answering the super smart physicist questions but she's also hot is it gwen stacy or is it mary sue it seems like one of those devices 
they want her to be everything. They want her to be smart and so attractive that she's not just pretty, she's a model. I don't know. The model bit takes it too far. I would have preferred her to have, like, a day job at an office building, because it's not like her being a model ever plays into anything at all. Never. Oh, come on! Aren't all model shoots, like, on the 40th floor of some skyscraper, (laughs) like, in an actual office? Yeah, totally. All right, let's, what do you think about this scene? I don't like the setup. I can tell you this. The happenstance of a crane going out of control and destroying a neighborhood building that is a photo shoot for Gwen, this scene should be motivated by Sandman. Sandman should be doing something that has created havoc and Spider-Man is cleaning it up and saves Gwen in the process. To me, that makes a lot more sense than random crane out of control. I agree completely. There's too much randomness going on. Yes. It just happens to be a crane that's going on that just happens to have Peter's lab partner who just happens to be the daughter of a police captain who will be able to rig it for Spider-Man to get the key of the city. James Cromwell back on now playing again, playing the character Dennis Leary will be playing on Friday. Yeah. And speaking of happenstance, taking the pictures of all of this is Peter's replacement at the Bugle, another double in here. And Topher Grace, kind of a ringer for Tobey Maguire. They did good on the casting of that one. Yeah, and I like Topher Grace from the little scene Take Me Home Tonight. He was good in it, even if it wasn't great. And that 70s show, I really like him in this. Even if it is a departure from the comic lore, I like that they went the doppelganger route. Yeah, I know he's supposed to come off swarmy and a bit of a dick, and he does. It's just, he doesn't seem like a real person to me. Like, you need someone that's the opposite of shy, nerdy Peter. I I guess this is it, but it doesn't seem like someone in real life. It just seems like a character. He's delusional, but that's kind of what I love about him. Most people, if they believe they were dating a girl, which we'll find out later isn't even the case, and she's dangling off a building, they wouldn't be joking about it with her father while taking pictures. The fact that this is the way that we learn about him, and then they take it a step further, then he tells Spider-Man that I'm replacing Peter Parker. We instantly hate him and love him, I think. He is someone that's deliciously obnoxious. I'm glad he's here, and I think this was a right choice. I think he plays it perfectly well, too. I am happy to see him on screen. He's happy to be here, and that, I think, comes through. Yeah, yeah, he's happy to be there, and I like comics, and I'm glad I'm in a comic book movie. I don't think he's happy to be there as in, hey, I want to act, and I want to enhance this movie. He comes off as a fanboy, almost like, I'm finally getting to play a character in a Spider-Man movie. It doesn't seem like He wants to be in this movie. He wants to say he was in a Spider-Man movie. No, I think it's comedy. It's larger than life. He's playing it the same way that Bruce Campbell plays the French waiter. You know, he knows he's doing it big. He's playing to an audience. It is a step beyond what some of the main characters have been doing. But I don't think that it's bad. It's just big. Yeah, that might be it. If he was a background character like Bruce Campbell, that would be fine. But earlier in this film, we saw Peter fight his best friend and almost kill him. And now we have this jokester showing up for half the film. Well, this movie follows his lead. With his introduction, the movie becomes increasingly more goofy. It becomes more like the last movie and less like the first movie. It veers into silly terrain by following this over-the-top character. 
there's so much nuance when it comes to humor, and I praise the last movie for its humor. You say it's going to go into the territory of the last one, but it's almost like this movie is the Eddie Brock to the last movie's Peter Parker, because while it's trying to do the same thing and looks like a mirror image, the subtle details are there that make this movie wretched. I will start by saying something I never thought I could say. I dislike the J. Jonah Jameson scene in this movie. Thank you. I can't believe I hate J.J. in this film. The humor just, we're going to ring a loud buzzer and he's going to be really nervous about it. Ugh. Yeah, it's family matters, perfect strangers, bad sitcom humor. Second of all, that scene drives home a point. Why do we need Gwen Stacy when Elizabeth Banks has been waiting in the wings for three movies? Why can't she be the other love interest? She was a love interest in the comics. Oh, I didn't know that, but I have no idea why she's here. In three movies, you told me when we did the first one that it was going to have payoff for all these characters later. I feel like I still don't know Ted Raimi's character. Oh, Ted Raimi's new for this. He, he's nobody. He's Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother. He was in the first movie. Yes, but he's created for the movies. Oh, okay. But Robbie Robertson and this other one, I don't understand it. You know another one that I can't figure out? Someone please explain to me what that Russian girl that lives <laughs> with the landlord... <laughs> Ursula! Who is that? I'm like, where is that going? I let it go with the last movie because it was so wacky anyway. <laughs> but now I really don't understand why she's back. Yeah, I swore. I'm like, this must be from the comics. When I looked it up on Wikipedia, I couldn't find anything about this being a comics character. She's not from the comics. Peter has had his share of landlords who want rent, rent. And I do, I do love the landlord. Sure. Ursula, I honestly think she's the voice of the comic reading audience. Mm. I really think she's there to be like, it's Mary Jane. We want to see you with Mary Jane. I'm telling you, this movie is full of the Greek choir. Like Ursula in both films. Maybe it's because she just comes across as so naive and a pleasant persona. I like her, but the scenes are totally pointless. Like in the last film, there's a whole milk and cake scene that goes nowhere. At least this time when she feeds them, it kind of has a payoff, but I don't know why she's in these movies. I would have laid a large sum of money, larger than I'm going to pay tickets for the IMAX of Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man, that she was going to turn later in some comic book as a real love interest. Oh, she's too homely to be a real love interest. I mean, look at who he's dating. You got Elizabeth Banks, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Kirsten Dunst. You don't have Ursula competing in that league. I kind of like her more than Gwen. I mean, Gwen, obviously she's not as pretty as Gwen, but Gwen is a blank to me here. I don't know exactly what she's doing, and I don't think that the filmmakers know exactly what to do with her, but this is the one that feels sitcom to me. This one feels like a transplant from a primetime TV show. And there's no hope that she'll be in the new movie, I suppose. If she's a creation of Raimi, <laughs> we'll never know what they were going to do. <laughs> the biggest problem I think I have, though, is Peter's being quite douchey ever before he puts on the black outfit. Thank you. That's a huge problem with this movie. Nothing he does once the goo jumps on him is that much different than what he does before the goo jumps on him. He finds out Sandman had a part in his uncle's death and he throws a temper tantrum in Captain Stacy's office. So he's already got anger management issues. He's already got ego issues. He's already oblivious to his girlfriend's feelings. So when the black goo finally jumps on him, again, a really cool special effect, the way the goo moves. Yeah. But when it finally gets on him, maybe you're three degrees eviler. 
but you're really about the same, except for the emo haircut. One thing is happening later in the film than I thought it would. You're right. A lot of development has already happened that you would think a new suit would influence. It's an hour before he gets this on him. And then, because I don't know what it is or what it wants, I'm not exactly sure what it's making him do that he wouldn't normally do. Yeah, because doesn't he have, like, a murderous rage for Sandman before he puts on the suit? I would think that he would kill Sandman regardless. We only know because of Aunt May's horrified reaction that that isn't something that we should want. But, truthfully, who wouldn't want Uncle Ben's murderer brought to justice? Okay, you could bring him to justice, shoot him up with your webs, and take him over to the police. Turn him in. Let him get tried for murder. You can't. By him being sand, really all that I could think to do was turn the hose on him. It's not like he had other options. I don't feel like this is a betrayal of Spider-Man. You guys can argue it. I don't know the character that well, but... Spider-Man killing would be a betrayal. Going out and stone-cold murdering someone, a villain. I would go with it if he was wearing the black outfit. I would go with Spider-Man killing in the black outfit, because then the black outfit really made him do some bad stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. That would help. But it's like turning a water gun on somebody. It wasn't really a weapon of death. I wasn't convinced that Sandman was out of the picture. I figured he had to come back into it. It didn't seem like turning on the water would solve the problem. No, of course not. I mean, we don't, we barely even get a few minutes to think that it would. But I did like that Spider-Man tried to be a little more intense. I just wish it had been a more drastic change before and after. That's all I'm saying is he just needed to be a bit more. And then after Sandman's dead, wow, this film, you know, I loved the montage in part two to Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. But the James Brown montage here, I don't even know how to read it. When Peter's like walking down the street and like snapping his fingers, dancing and pointing at girls and girls are looking. Do they think he's cool or are they weirded out? No, they all look disgusted, Adam. My question is, who thought this was a good idea? Did Raimi think this was a good idea to have him, you know, snapping his fingers, dancing around with his new emo hairdo? This isn't even good. I don't care how dark his suit is. This is not a good direction to take Spider-Man. I don't feel like this humor is way off in calibration from what a lot of the last movie was doing. Oh, no. no I, I'm sorry. It's pushing it a little bit further... But not a lot. You people are acting like him dancing around is some weird betrayal, but he did a lot of goofy things in that last movie. Humor is about degrees. That's why there are good comedians and bad comedians. You all may be telling the same story, but one is funny and one is not. This is not amusing. This is honestly petrifying. I'm looking at this like I'm seeing a symbiote under a glass jar jumping around going, what are you? And I'm afraid of you. Here's the thing. This is why I never want to do a comedy series on Now Playing. I don't like arguing humor. You laugh, you don't laugh. There's nothing really to talk about here. I didn't laugh at this scene, but I didn't think that it was way off the mark from what had been done in the last movie. And that you guys think it's so radically different, well, maybe you can understand why I didn't recommend the last movie then, if you feel this way about this humor. It, to me, it, I'm feeling the same way. Stuart, let's talk about how this humor 
services the plot. In Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man trying to deliver pizza, and he's in the elevator, and he's tugging at his crotch. At least that plays in the plot. Like, Spider-Man's losing his power, so he's got to take the elevator. Okay, let's throw a joke in here. Here, Spider-Man's evil, he's murdering people, and now he's going to go dance down the street. That humor is totally disconnected. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but he's not murdering people. He believes he murdered the Sandman. I don't see that as the same thing. He tells Aunt May, I took care of him, he's dead. I killed him. And he would be perfectly fine killing Harry. He doesn't care whether Harry lives or dies. Harry does throw a bomb at him, and we should say at this point, Harry is starting to snap out of his nice phase. It's MJ yet again that seems to bring out these negative influences. She goes over there to make omelets, and they end up kissing, and all of a sudden, he's decided he's goblin again. And so he forces Mary Jane to break up with Peter, which she seemed ready to do already. Yeah, didn't need much pushing. I'm not quite sure how much of this is fake. She was kissing Harry. That's not exactly loyal to the man who was about to give you his dead uncle's engagement ring. And this is where I'm really turning on MJ. In the first movie, I said she had too many boyfriends. Here... Oh my gosh, she's running back to Harry? Ooh, this is making me not like her. And I think this may be by design. But I get it. At the same time, to be fair, she feels like Peter is leaving her behind, just like Harry has been left behind. He's there for her in a way that Peter is not. Well, that's not even fair, though, because she tells Harry, oh, I got fired. She never gives... Peter the chance to react to that. She never tells him. We don't know how Peter would have reacted. Maybe he would have said, oh, screw this black suit. I got to be nicer to you because you're going through a hard time. He's never given that chance by her. Oh, I agree. He should have been told, but I think she thought she was being nice by not telling him. Regardless, Harry has gone back to his evil ways and Peter is wearing his black suit more and more often, and he comes to Harry. Harry throws the bomb first. I don't think it's so evil that he throws the bomb back. Is that evil? For Spider-Man, yeah. Spider-Man would not do that. Yeah. Batman might. Punisher would. Spider-Man shouldn't. And I do love this fist fight, too. It's another great Harry-Peter fight. And I like how it ends, but it is shocking. This is as dark as Peter's going to get, is a bomb thrown at him, he's going to throw it right back. This isn't what Spider-Man does, but it's what black suit Spider-Man does. And I I was surprised that it caused disfigurement, like facial scarring for Harry. I guess I should have known at that point, or I should have known in the early scene right after Amnesia, where he goes, they're my best friends, I die for them. But if that didn't cue me in that Harry was going to be underground by the end of the film, the fact that they disfigure him should have. Are we supposed to believe that Harry lived through this explosion because he has some kind of healing factor because of the gas? That blew up like right in his face, literally. And it screwed up his face and blinded him in an eye, but... The magnitude of the explosion looks like it would do more damage than it actually did, but it does look pretty bad. And I agree with you. I'm not arguing that what Peter is doing is right. I think it's in keeping of that theme that Raimi wants to sell at this point, 2007. We can't let revenge define us as a country. We must wield our power wisely. I think that he has gone too far. But at the same time, for me, I don't feel like it's far enough. I wanted to see Spider-Man do something really bad. In self-defense, throwing a bomb back at someone that's trying to kill you, uh, I don't know. Stuart, with great power comes great responsibility. That's the whole betrayal is that he's using this great power to just get revenge. Keep in mind, he's a goody-goody. You called him a goody-goody yourself in the first podcast. Yeah. He should not be this dark 
hero. He should not be eye for an eye. You're talking to somebody that's seen Punisher and Blade, and I think that's the problem, is it's I'm not making a distinguishing between Spider-Man and all the other Marvel heroes. You're right. When you're explaining it to me this way, this is a betrayal. It's weird, though, because they try to have it goofy, too. You know, Ursula feeding him food and him making her make more cookies or whatever. It's The whole sex magnet thing seems counterintuitive with him becoming a bad person. It makes him look foolish, unlikable, certainly, but not a threat. And I kind of wanted to see Parker be threatening. Do you think that they could push him too far? Like, I think it's too convenient to just say, well, it was the suit that made him do it. You could push him too far where I don't care if it's the suit. I don't like this character anymore. And I think they're walking that very fine tightrope. Even though this movie's PG-13, they know there are like six, seven, eight-year-old kids here. So Peter can't do anything too bad because little kids may not get it's the suit. And so they walk this weird tightrope of he's bad, but he's not that bad. He may maim his friend, but he kind of deserves it, as Stuart pointed out the rationalization. And when he gets to the jazz club, his most evil act is he dances and then accidentally knocks down Mary Jane. This is where I'm done with Peter. This dude's got spider senses. You know, I don't think it was intentional, but you just knocked out your fiance. At this point, I don't care that you're Spider-Man. I don't care about your stories. This is Chris Brown and Rihanna now. I'm done. <laughs> oh, really? I'm surprised you took it that way. I honestly thought that's how a less educated audience would have taken it. Ouch. <laughs> that's getting back for that pro wrestling comparative <laughs> from the last movie. Because seriously, I was saying like a six-year-old and seven-year-old might turn against him for that. I would think a more adult, educated audience would realize that A, it was accidental, B, it was the black suit, and not start immediately go, oh, you knocked down a woman accidentally, I must immediately turn against you like you're Chris Brown. This dude's got spider senses. He could tell when MJ's around. I don't think he did it on purpose, but... Actually, one of the things about the Venom suit is it blocks his spider sense. When Venom attacks him, he can't sense it. The suit can control the spider sense and block it. Is it on him when he's not wearing the suit or is he making the choice to putting it on and it has control of him? It took me my third watching to figure this out. He does take it on and off, but he does wear it under his clothes sometimes. If he has the emo bangs, it's on. If his hair is combed back, it's off. I thought it might be his hair gel. Yeah, he had the Bieber going on. (laughs) Yes. Whenever he has the Bieber, he's wearing the suit, which lets us know immediately Justin Bieber is indeed evil. (laughs) As if we needed this movie to tell us that. But yeah, he does take it on and off, which explains like why in one scene, it confused the hell out of me, why in one scene he's apologizing to Dinkovich, and then the very next one he's like, go make me cookies and put nuts in them. I couldn't figure out his oscillation. Mm -hmm. The only clue you have is the hairline, and that's bad filmmaking. Yeah, that's hard to know. Getting back to the jazz club scene, yeah, the dancing's silly, and it seems like a weird way of trying to make him villainous. But I do think that the psychological torture that he does is kind of cruel. The fact that he would use Gwen to rub in MJ's face that he has another girl, you know, when she's at this job she hates. She has to be a singing waitress. You know, she used to be on Broadway, and then to bring in Gwen, that was really cruel. And it is the one time that I like Gwen, because she catches on, and she walks out. 
And that's when I think Gwen was a bad choice. Wouldn't it have been good if you're going with this whole dichotomy that you had a good girl, bad girl, and yet a girl who, like, got turned on by making the other girl jealous or something? Well, I guess that's the way to play it, but that makes her a bad girl. That's what I'm saying, is wouldn't bad Peter want a bad girl? Mm, I see. Instead, you just get this goody-goody who goes, I'm sorry, and runs off to never be seen again in the film. <laughs> True, huh? No, she's in the funeral. I saw oh, that's, her. Yeah, well, she doesn't even know Harry. They didn't even go to high school <laughs> together. Why is she at the funeral? But I don't know. But yeah, she does show up at the funeral. But I do like the psychological warfare, though. And again, though, here's where I became confused. Because, yes, yeah, some of the women on the street did seem repulsed by Peter. But when he's doing his dance, everybody's, like, applauding him. Even though it's quite obviously he just jacked the stage from the singer. I treat it like a pheromone kind of thing. It's like, I do think women keep their mind and realize this guy is really a jerk. But that doesn't stop the innate magnetism from taking over. They're going to follow him, even though their mind is saying no 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 their body is saying something else the bad boy effect yeah and of course he has one more act of badness before he repents and tears off the suit he exposes brock here's another thing where i was wondering is this something peter parker wouldn't do brock has what doctored a photo of spider-man that explained this scene to me j jonah jameson offered a staff position to whichever photographer could bring a photo of spider-man breaking the law so eddie just grabbed a previous front page photo okay photoshopped it so it's the new black suit and made it look like he's stealing money i didn't see the stealing money part yeah he's got money bags probably sandman's he photoshopped a money bag into an old photo and had him in a black suit uh-huh yep and that got printed uh-huh and they're blaming brock for that <laughs> that's not brock's fault that is the editor's fault <laughs> Well, Brock did pass the photo off as authentic. I don't know when photographers became journalists and stories were written because one person snapped one photo without any eyewitnesses. Uh, this was JJ's paper, so it, I don't know. Yes. I'm willing to give it that. It was yellow journalism. JJ thrives on anything that's negative to Spider-Man, whether it be true or not. He's going to print it. I'll accept this, even though I hate it. But is it bad that Peter finds out about this trick and turns him in. Brock has a change of heart. He begs him, please, I'll be ruined forever. And Peter is unforgiving. Is that out of character? Are we supposed to think that it's bad that he turns in an awful journalist? Honestly, real Peter would have done it differently. He wouldn't have smashed Brock into the wall. And possibly, knowing Peter Parker, he might have given Brock the thing of like, you can turn yourself in or I'm going to turn you in in two days or something like that. He wouldn't have been as brazen, as brash, as angry. But yeah, I think Peter would have stood up for himself. They'd like to think so. I mean, yeah, he was supposed to learn that about how to defend yourself against bullies. You're right. It's about learning the balance of powers. You use powers and you use them against people that are meaning you harm. You just don't abuse them so that it becomes about your vengeance over justice. That's a tricky balance we could all learn from. Spider-Man's a good character, I think, for these times. But in these scenes, it's hard for me to gauge when he's really overstepped a line. Maybe I'm wrong, but I really wanted him to overstep a line in a big way. And I feel like he never does. In all these examples of bad behavior, it never is truly, truly horrible. 
I'm telling you, I wanted him to use the black suit to kill Sandman. Yes. And then that's where the movie ends. You're right. There is the answer to what I'm asking for. There is the solution. And because Sandman isn't even flesh and blood, he's much easier to dissolve. You know? Right. It's it's a much easier death than, say, Harry. It's not carnage when it's sand. Yeah, I agree. It's not bloody. It's not gore. No, carnage is Venom's son. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we won't get into the anti-Venom either. Oh, wait! That was the one in the, like, glow-in-the-dark Spider-Man evil suit on the stage. Yes. Stuart, it's so cute that you know all this because of a play. <laughs> Here's the thing. Spider-Man has to realize he doesn't want to become evil and get rid of the suit as soon as he stepped over the line the first time. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work for me. Let me say how the filmmakers view this, which I never saw it until they said it, so that's poor filmmaking, but let me put out their hypothesis to see if you guys react to it. Okay, I'm open. To them, the black suit is like drug addiction. Mm -hmm. The power it gives him, because it makes him stronger. It's hard to tell in the movie because Spider-Man's already strong. Right. But it makes him stronger and faster-er. He says that. Yeah. I feel stronger. I feel different. That's telling, not showing, but we got that information. So having the suit, he becomes addicted to the power the suit gives him, even if his addiction causes him to have these bad moods. So if you take it as heroin or you take it as crack, I could see why after his first thing, it wouldn't do it. It's funny, though. Kill Sandman? Keep wearing it. Make Ursula make some cookies? Keep wearing it. Expose Brock? Keep wearing it. Blow up Harry's face? Keep wearing it. Bad dance? Ooh, that's too far. It's MJ. I'm telling you, it's always MJ. And I don't think that's a bad choice. MJ is a moral compass for Peter. It lets him know where he is. I mean, she's everything. I don't think anyone should make another person that way in their mind, but it is how they've defined the character, and I think it's right to keep it in that tradition. I just think you fundamentally change this character if you make him a heroin addict. Sure, he could take a couple of hits, see what it's like, decide it's not his thing, but once he keeps going back to it over and over and over, it changes this character. We've talked about he's the cuddly character, he's the optimistic hero, and now I don't like him, and I don't think this is a film that wants to take the subject serious enough to explore it the right way. It would just be so much easier if that alien ooze got on Brock. And it never got on Peter. I know that that's not what happened in the comic. I know that that negates some of the themes that they're trying to teach us and the morals. But it sure would make it simple. It also creates a logic flaw of why does it make him a spider? The thing that it does by going to Peter first is it absorbs the outfit. It absorbs his powers to then give to the next people. Ah. If it just happened to be an alien from space that turned you into Spider-Man, that's an even bigger stretch. Okay. Did it call that out in a piece of exposition that it had absorbed his suit? Like, I was wondering why, when Venom shows up, he is a spider. Is that called out? No. Okay, so we're just supposed to assume <laughs> that. So he could have just done that because they never explain it. Yeah, unless it was part of Connor's dialogue. He had a lot of dialogue. I'm looking for ways to make this simpler because, I'll be honest with you, I don't really have any problems with any of these storylines per se. Conceptually, all of them I kind of agree with. Some more than others. Some are done very poorly. Some a little bit better. But I agree with all of them. It's the combination of all of them that's creating the headache. It's the fact that they're trying to do so much here and thus giving short shrift to all their storylines that it's so frustrating. By the time he's tearing off the suit and it's falling off and all of that, I'm surprised that this is where the movie's at. We're what, hour and 30 minutes in? Hour 40. Wow. With only 35 to go. 
And that counts credits. So, yeah, I want to know why he went to the bell tower to do this. How did he know to go to a bell tower to strip? Happenstance! He doesn't know. He trips onto the bell. He happens to go to the church. And why a bell? Like, I didn't know if it was the vibrations, if it was the sound. In this movie, it doesn't matter. Yeah. No, that's the problem. In the comic, he at least knew from Mr. Fantastic, hey, sound is bad. So he went specifically to a bell. Here, yeah. It's just lucky that he happened to be there at the top of the hour. We've never seen any of these characters talking about religion, reading their Bible, and all of a sudden now two characters are at a church at the same time? Peter did say in just an offhanded way that he needed to go find religion. Now, of course, there are many churches in Manhattan and that it would be the same church that they're both there and that he would happen to be standing underneath it praying for Jesus to kill Peter Parker and the suit obliging by giving him the power to do so. All of this is magical simplicity that is going to irritate you to one degree or another. And it's yet another mulligan I give it because it's right out of the comic. Eddie Brock was a Catholic who went to church after losing his job at the Bugle to pray for Peter Parker's death and the suit just happens to fall at that time and bonds because they both hate Peter. Arnie, that's fine, except they never s- established this Eddie Brock as a Catholic that goes to church. No. If they would have shown that, then I could maybe go with it a little bit better. But no, it's just like, you want forgiveness? Go get some religion. And so he goes to a church. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's bad. And here's the worst part is it's just, again, heaped upon itself over and over and over again. So the things I can give it become harder to give it because of all the things I can't. But again, great effects. The visual style of this movie is astoundingly good. It helps. I I just wish it was I was watching it on mute. Do, Do you know this movie was not nominated for an Oscar? It's not shocking because the Oscars tend to shun movies that are not well-liked, even if they have great effects. They don't want to do it. It needed a nomination. It's a travesty. It's just because of the public opinion of this film that they couldn't even let the technicians get some credit for some amazing work. Now, don't get me wrong. It does go a little downhill at the end. But a little. <laughs> they did show one clip of this at Comic-Con, and it's greatly improved from what they had. I think that Raimi was even hesitant to show anything of Venom. But we were the first in the world to get a peek of what Venom was going to look at, and it was really a half second of growling, and it got better. I find that it's acceptable. I didn't know how Venom was going to look, and I buy this. And in that Entertainment Weekly article, Sam Raimi did say that they are literally tearing the film from his fingers to make prints. He still wanted to touch up some of the effects. Mm. All right, so help me out, comic book people. This black ooze has no name, has no origin, is a space creature that fell in love with Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and loved him so much that created a powerful suit for him to use, and is the worst you can say about him, an enabler for his worst tendencies. It's a symbiote. It was feeding off of him. It was also weakening him in certain ways and controlling his body when he slept, if you're going for the comic book origin. Not uh, so unlike the tentacles from the last movie. Right, you could kind of go there, yeah. Okay, so once it has been torn off, it feels jilted like a lover. It is like, you rejected me, and is it a coincidence that it's Brock? Or does he bond with Brock because Brock hates him in the same way? In the comic, it's because of their shared hatred for Peter Parker. 
Venom, the the ooze, the jilted lover, Brock hating Peter Parker for making him lose his job. And so they find each other in hatred, although it does happen to be happenstance that Brock was in that church. I don't even think Brock might have been in that church at that time. I'd have to go back and reread. But here, it's just Brock's the only one in the church, and the symbiote bonds with him. The way I took it, it needs to bond to something. Although it stayed on Earth for a long time on, like, his backpack before bonding to him. I know, but they call it out that it needs to be bonded to something to live, so it becomes very convenient at the end. And Connor's little specimen never died, I don't think. This is where I needed Connor's. This is exactly the moment I needed Connor's. I needed to know what was going on with the alien. I needed Connor's to have found a relationship with that and be able to report. All he ever reports is things we already know. It makes you more aggressive. You shouldn't touch it with it. I mean, that's what's irritating. He needed to work out some way to talk with the creature so I could understand backstory we're never given about it. Or at least figure out the bell thing and yeah. let Peter know. Yeah. yeah. If he had just done the sound thing, that would have been enough. But now Venom, a really poor CGI creation that's on screen very little. He goes looking for Sandman. I don't like this the most. I know that you guys have been quibbling a lot about this movie, and I've more or less agreed with many of the things you've said, but I've never felt very strongly about what's not working as much as the happenstance of Venom saying, hey, Sandman, let's get together. This makes no sense. That yeah, Sandman sp- just, what, runs into Venom because Sandman thinks it's Spider-Man, and they're like, yo, let's be bros. And Sandman is trying to get his daughter fixed. Is Venom going to help in any way with that? If that had been the trade-off, if you help me get Parker and I will fix your daughter... Fine, I'll go with this absurd pairing. But you don't give me anything of that? There's no reason why this morally conflicted gray area villain that they have in Sandman will go with pure evil Venom. There's none. Zero. You can't explain it. The reason that is given is Sandman's tired of being stopped stealing money by Spider-Man. If this guy can help him to get Spider-Man, so be it. And so it's a partnership of convenience. Money. I mean, again, this is all that he cares about. He's a 40-foot-tall sand dune. He could knock over buildings and does, but no, it's all about robbing more banks. Okay. He's not very bright. No. That's, in fact, one of the characteristics in the comics. He's just a dumb thug. So when he gets the power, he just uses it to do more thuggery. And then the convenient storytelling really just gives me whiplash as he's like, you hate the bug, I hate the bug, let's team up, okay. And the next thing, you've got some Brit on the news talking about the travesty of downtown. In the last movie, it was a movie about Spider-Man and Peter Parker. We spent so much time in his life to go from let's team up and not get any Peter Parker scenes in between. Now we see Peter Parker watching a TV and has to go stop a fight. The pacing of this is just all over the map. And Spider-Man realizes the only way that he can save Mary Jane is by going to a scarred and still bitter, even more, now he has a real reason to hate (laughs) Spider-Man. And let's be friends now. Let's team up. Here's the reason why I think Mary Jane works better than Gwen Stacy at the end. Harry would have no reason to help Peter save Gwen. Even though Gwen goes to Harry's funeral. Well, (laughs) yes. Well, maybe that scene was filmed before they knew who was going to be in the car at the end. But at least he has a motivation to help MJ. And plus, we get the wonderful Bill Paxton's father, who cannot act worth a damn. Your father. 
died. Is this the butler? Yes. That's Bill Paxton's father? Yes. This pivotal moment where, like, Harry has to make this big decision. Do I go for revenge or do I team up with an old friend and do the right thing? This pivotal moment... Once again, we're relying on a monologue from a character, and this is a character we've never, like, seen. They've been in the background serving drinks, but has he ever said anything throughout these films? This is my second least favorite moment in the movie. (laughs) And they're coming in rapid succession. Yes. After Venom and Sandman decide to team up, the idea that all of Harry's angst that he's held on for so long now is going to be solved by a man who has had the answer the entire time (laughs) and has been in the background the entire time and only now decides after he is disfigured, after he's seen all of this, octopuses breaking through windows, (laughs) disfigurement, red, blue Spider-Man, black Spider-Man, whatever. He's seen all of this and oh, by the way, your father, I saw the holes. I'm a part-time CSI investigator. I saw the holes in his abdomen. It was the glider. Spider-Man was innocent. You know how insane that is? I saw the holes. I, it was from the glider that I knew he had, the military glider. Like, yeah. this is insane. The whole time that people were looking for that terrorist on the green glider, I knew who he was. I worked for him. I allowed that to happen. It opens up so many problems that I just, I can't even believe. I mean, this is the reason why he ultimately helps. It's not MJ. MJ helps as a motivator, but this is the reason why he can allow himself to team up with Spider-Man because he knows Spider-Man didn't do it. I'm fine with that conceptually, but if this is the way that he comes to that realization, you just cut it. You just cut that scene. (laughs) I'd rather have no answer than have this answer. And obviously Harry is a man who's fueled by rage. Given the Harry character we've seen for two full movies now, I think he'd be like, well, fine. He didn't kill my father. He still jacked up my face. I'm mad. (laughs) The only way this could play worse if it was Schwarzenegger, you know? (laughs) They do it. Call me in the morning. I mean, I haven't been this angry at a plot contrivance since Batman and Robin. That is really, really bad. And I've always thought that, too. It's like, oh, my God. He knew the whole time he chose this moment. There's so many more. He could have saved so much pain and suffering. I would kill him. Yes, I agree. (laughs) We should reunite to not fight Venom and Sandman, but to kill your ass. (laughs) So we get the final fight. You still sticking to the CGI is good, Arnie? Poor Venom. My character I was so excited for. He's awful. I think there's a reason they kept showing Topher Grace's face is because they couldn't afford the Venom face. It's just abysmal. Did they do something to his teeth, too, when he was talking? It looked like he had some messed up teeth. Not only that, they didn't even bother looping his dialogue when it wasn't in there. If you listen, (laughs) he's talking like this. I'm going to get you, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had this bad a mouth of jack teeth since Fright Night. (laughs) Why teeth? Because that makes you evil. That's what I don't get. That's what he's going to turn evil on him, his teeth? Evil equals jacked up teeth. People, if you got f***ed up teeth, you're evil. I don't care who you are. I ain't talking to you. Here's the thing is, in the comic, Venom wanted his revenge by eating Peter Parker's brain. So he had a giant tongue, a giant jaw, and big teeth. If this Eddie Brock had once said, I'm going to eat your brain, I would have gone with that. Uh, But now I just don't get the teeth. No. And I hate to quote myself, but I took my notes when watching this movie about Sandman here at the end. And I wrote in my notes, 
He's like the damn Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I then went back after that and listened to my old podcast. Yeah, I'm repeating myself now. But isn't he like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? I'm sorry. Have you seen Ghostbusters recently? That actually looks halfway decent. This is awful looking like it's unfinished, right? They just ran out of time. I think that's true. I don't think these things are awful. I think they're undone. I think that if there had been more time... These- if you put something that's not complete on the screen, that is awful, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, have, you make a good point, but I don't know. I, I wasn't hating this scene because of the effects. Let me be clear. No, no, I'm not saying Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in effects. I'm saying he became a giant, groaning, puffy version of himself. Yes. Why did he lose the ability to speak when he became this giant thing? Because the animators were already tired and they wanted to go home. Yeah. Why didn't he turn into cool stuff? <laughs> yeah. He's a blob. Looking at the analogy of the T-1000 and liquid metal, being particulate, being able to go through doors now. I mean, he should be able to go through any crack or anything like that. He is untethered from the bonds of being a human being. He should be a much bigger threat. The fact that all he can think to do is, yes, repeat Ghostbusters climax I'm not even sure what he's doing. He's causing distraction while Venom is actually doing the bad stuff. He's become a henchman. That's a step down. Again, he was never that bright. It's a good use of him. But it's really when the two of them together team up, Venom holding him down, Sandman pummeling, that Spider-Man looks like he may actually die until Harry shows up at the right moment. Yes, that was predictable. But I do like the two of them fighting together. I thought that was really cool. At this point, my first watching of the movie, I still didn't know Harry was going to die. And I was kind of thinking, well, part four with a super team might be good. Spider-Man and his amazing friend with a disfigured face. Well, no, maybe <laughs> maybe Harry would get amnesia again and he forgot that they kissed and made up. They'd be enemies again. I like the concept of the fight. I like the action in the fight. I hate how it looks. I hate how it ends. There's some cool things in there, like Harry uses his super snowboard to heat up the sand and turn it into glass. I know that's like kind of stupid, but I like that. I thought, oh, that's how they're going to defeat him. They're just going to turn him into glass and he won't be able to move. I hate, though, that this is all interrupted by, again, I never thought I could hate Jay Jonah, but him wrangling the camera away from that girl. What a horrible diversion. Sorry, New Yorkers, if it does reflect you guys in any way, but you're a bunch of idiots if you're standing around while there's a giant pile of sand punching stuff. You kind of run the other way when that's happening. But instead, we get, like, little kids watching this. Awesome! Wicked cool! Like, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be thinking right now. I'm not. Venom goes to use Harry's glider on Peter, and Harry sacrifices himself, jumping in front of the blade, and like his father, dies at his own weapon. But for a noble cause, it's conceptually nice in execution lacking i think that's my review for the entire movie i like a lot of the ideas here i think that the team up and the redemption is good for harry i like that he won't be back playing the same character next time yeah i gotta say he was the villain i anticipated least the character in this movie i actually liked most yeah and then they killed him and pissed me off I think he has the best arc here, honestly. I think Harry is the star of this movie, at least the best parts of it. And then we see in flashback, Peter remembers, hey, it was noise that stopped the Venom. And so he creates this silly, bad animated pipe cage. So now he's strong enough to, like, jam metal through concrete? I never got the sense that he was that strong. Ah, there's so much wrong with this movie, I'm not going to pick on degrees of strength. Yeah. (laughs) And Brock 
also sacrifices himself for a less noble cause, jumping in to die with the symbiote. Kind of sad to see Topher go. I like him in this movie, even if I didn't like the Venom character that he ended up being. I'm okay with this as a conclusion for his story arc. The one that's perplexing me? Sandman. All right, I've just been terrorizing New York. I've now reassembled into my human form so that I can explain myself about shooting Uncle Ben. This is what I'm saying. Spider-Man, what's his reply? I've done terrible things too. This is the whole, like, both sides are terrorists according to the other person. We're no better than them. We kill them and they kill us. We're the same. Like, I have a problem with this. This is not a resolution. This is a murderer. And maybe killing him isn't the right idea, but bringing him to justice is. Not letting him float away. I completely agree. First of all, in most of the flashbacks we saw, which were Peter's imaginings, Sandman gunned down Uncle Ben in cold blood and with anger. When you hear Sandman's side of the story, which is a subjective truth, it looks like the gun accidentally goes off. But no matter what, that's manslaughter and he's robbed some banks. How about we stop him now? Yes. However you might have felt about the end of Osama bin Laden, maybe you were horrified that he was taken out the way he was, maybe you were in the streets cheering it, we could all agree that he needed to be brought to some kind of justice, even if you don't like the way that it was done. The idea that you can just say, oh well, shrug, you killed the whole reason why I exist, I'm okay with it. Can I just say, though, I think you guys are really stretching the 9-11 metaphors at this point. Comparing Sandman to Osama bin Laden, killing one man and robbing a few banks is far different than orchestrating 9-11 and many other terror attacks. I don't think he's like Osama bin Laden. I think he's the terrorist. Spider-Man is the U.S. You know, Venom is this more vengeful side of the U.S. And, and But Spider-Man, he's the apologist. He's, oh, we got to understand them. And we did things to make them mad. So maybe we deserved it a little bit. We've done bad things, too. I don't know that he's an apologist. He, what he's trying not to do is let his anger overwhelm his character. I think that that was a fair message to hear at that time. But these characters can't possibly possibly fulfill that story arc. I mean, if I want this kind of storytelling, I'm going to go to our next series. I'm going to go to Nolan. He knows how to do this stuff. This here, this is sloppy, incomplete, and just too cartoonish, by definition, too silly, the way that they've set up this world to work in this metaphor. It's a bad ending when we get Sandman half crying and what, blowing away? Is he gone? Is he dead? Did he give it up? No, he just went away. I mean, he blew away earlier just like this. This is his escape. So he's going to rob more banks? Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Spider-Man is not going to fight him or just promises not to use the hose this time? <laughs> don't know. It's so bad. What I don't get is now the Sandman knows who Spider-Man is. He knows he's Peter Parker. Dude, just go to the tabloids and sell that story. You don't have to rob banks. You get a cool million there. Or you go Stuart's Oprah plan. I mean, it's all about the same. The guy's not that bright. Did I mention that? Mm. But we end as we've begun. It's always been a story about the girl next door, MJ. Yep. She's sound and they're dancing in the jazz club. They're not dancing. She's singing at the jazz club. He comes in and sees her. They embrace... Neither one looks too happy, and they did just bury Harry. I thought there was kind of a shuffle there. I thought maybe they were finding their groove again. I think if Kirsten Dunst had returned, maybe they were finding their groove again. <laughs> but 
honestly, Harry caused them to break up, right? They were having their problems. Harry caused the breakup, but they didn't get back together after Harry exposed. I mean, yeah, Peter did some stuff in a black suit and all, but it seemed to me that Harry forcing MJ to break up, again, kind of like the black suit, it only pushed her a couple more degrees from where we saw her anyway. She was kissing him before he was evil. So, at this point, I think that maybe they're still broken up. They're hugging, they're lost, but if the fourth movie came around and Mary Jane was nowhere to be seen, we've seen their breakup, I feel. And at the time this movie came out, I thought, well, in part four, Peter and Mary Jane will finally get married. After all, that was huge news, famous news, Spider-Man getting married to Mary Jane. They did a real-life enactment at Shea Stadium. Willie Smith not the rapper, designed the wedding dress. Huge thing. Now, Jacob, I'm sure you'll have something to say about this. About six months only after this movie came out, Spider-Man and Mary Jane not only weren't married, but they'd never been married. Had to make a deal with the devil. They literally retconned the entire marriage out of continuity. And it was a plan enacted by Joe Quesada, who I mentioned earlier wanted to bring Gwen Stacy back from the dead because they felt having Peter married limited their story possibilities too much and aged him too much. They couldn't divorce him because that aged him even further. The only thing they could do was literally bring in Satan to make a deal with the devil. Aunt May was dying to save Aunt May's life. Satan took their love and undid their marriage. And brought Harry back to life in the process. Yeah, it's insane. I, it was a very polarizing storyline. A lot of people gave up on Spider-Man because of that. But they planned their stories at Marvel more than five months in advance, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they have big retreats where they figure all this stuff out. And I'm sure they know what they're doing. Big movie, popular characters. We want these new readers to be able to see those characters in our books. I honestly think, looking at the big picture, looking at the movies, Joe Quesada didn't want to be tied to Mary Jane for the future movies. Maybe Avia Rod agreed. And I honestly think that part of the reason Peter Parker's marriage was undone is to open the door in case Kirsten Dunst didn't return for part four as all signs pointed that she wouldn't. I think this is their goodbye hug. Well, interesting. I never took it as that. But I can recognize that, it, like all the endings here is mixed feelings. It's sadness and yet reconciliation at the same time. People made choices, but maybe we don't know exactly if they're going to keep to them. And speaking of sadness, we end on the worst song of the entire trilogy, Snow Patrol, a band I actually like, giving a terrible song here. Terrible. The worst. Well, after all of this, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Spider-Man 3? Jacob. Um, I don't think there's a lot of mystery of where I'm going to be going here. Look, this movie, I don't know if it's a case of trying to be too ambitious. These movies, a lot of times, they're kind of done on the fly. We're going to make a movie even though we don't have a damn script. And we've talked about that here. There's two different directions. The director and the producer wanted to go, and it goes more than two different directions here. It goes all over the place. The humor's off. The direction they take Peter, I just don't think it's right. I don't want to see meth addict Peter Parker Spider-Man here. It's not right for the character. It can be if you do it the right way, but they're not interested in doing it the right way here. I really feel this is almost the equivalent of Batman Forever, toyetic. It's not good. There's a line in here. We always have a choice. 
So you don't have to see this film. Not recommended. Stuart. Well, here's the thing. Arnie, your phone call gave me the impression that this was going to be something a lot more clumsy and horrible than it actually is. I was imagining Catwoman, Batman and Robin, Howard the Duck, real train wreck, something to vilify. This still has the heart that all of the Raimi movies do. I think that it has problems that are different from the last movie, but it is not so out of step with the last two movies. Spider-Man, the original, is still my favorite. I think they got the balance right. I think that the origin story is where it needed to be and did not need to continue into these other two films, but that they chose to do that. Two, for me, the problem was it focused so much on sort of the comedy and the angst. This one is they tried to do too much of the villainry, and they both suffer for it. But yes, Spider-Man 2 is a better movie, but Spider-Man 3 is not some come-down that should be banished from the franchise. I find it weird to think that fans want nothing to do with this movie. It is a flawed movie. It suffers greatly by trying to do too much, but it never strays from what Raimi has always wanted to do. And I think that if he had been able to focus on the Venom storyline and get rid of all of the Uncle Ben was killed by Sandman stuff, if it had been that, I really do think this movie would have worked. But as is, it's a not recommend. And Stuart, I was shocked when this movie came out, truthfully shocked. But going back and hearing my initial unfiltered reactions on that podcast, I have on record that I didn't say this was a travesty. I didn't say this was man thing. At the time, I said this movie wasn't all bad. I didn't recommend it, but I knew there were some things here that I liked. And this podcast, I've been pretty hard on it because it's hard to be easy on it. I've tried to call out the things I liked. I liked a lot of the fights. I liked a lot of the effects. I really think the production team who did the effects and the storyboarding and the fight choreography did their job well until the last fight where, yeah, we all agree, they just ran out of time. Yeah. Another month could have made the difference between that looking good and not looking good. That said, that last fight looking good wouldn't change this movie. The problems with this movie are entirely script and direction. You say not to tackle big issues, that's Nolan's thing. Well, we'll talk next week whether Nolan really did that with his first movie, and I don't think you should write Raimi off so quickly. He did turn in two solid films. So, uh, we all agree the first one was solid. I think Raimi could do it. Raimi here was either exhausted or uninspired or a combination thereof. Maybe there were too many cooks in the kitchen. Maybe the ship went off course. I think my research has shown a lot of places where this went wrong. You had cast members who just didn't want to be there and were contractually obligated. Maybe the same thing for the director. Studios feeling more emboldened and more aggressive. At this point, they were actively in development of Iron Man and taking full control. Spider-Man had helped them to get to that point and they were exercising their muscle over here. I think there's a lot of things that went wrong with this movie. And the end result is a film that, no, it is not a pariah. I've watched this movie several times just as, like, background noise, and I'll pay attention during the fights, and especially anything that involves Harry, I'll be like, that's a really good fight scene. The rest of it, though, is an abysmal, unfocused, overpopulated mess. It's... Not the strongest not recommend, it's just a right middle of the road not recommend. But it is clearly a not recommend. We're finally on the same page with Spider-Man. I feel like you and I are finally feeling exactly the same way about it. I look at this film, 
and see what could have been. A couple script polishes, a director who actually cared about one of the villains. I mean, to give Venom 30 minutes in cinematic history, you're going to create him at the hour 40 mark and kill him at the 205. That's just giving the middle finger to Venom fans everywhere. I can see promise in this film. And after the last two, that just seemed to get better and better. But I walked out of this and I'm like, I said it on the podcast then. You guys chided me recently about, oh, Arnie, it it was horrible, but you always want the sequel. I walked out of that going, please stop. Wow. I want you to not do this anymore. That's telling. I didn't think that they had the care to redeem themselves. I still saw some promise. I still liked McGuire. I still liked this universe. But from what they'd done and everything I'd read in the pre-release press, I just wanted people who care about the project to take it over. And I'm hoping now that's what we get. We almost got them back. Raimi agreed to come back for Spider-Man 4. McGuire said he'd come back if Raimi did. The studio was engaged, scripts were written, and as always, they seem one film behind. The villain was going to be the Vulture, but not Ben Kingsley, now John Malkovich, as a green-outfitted, flying, bald old man. Yeah, I can't say that I'm missing Malkovich in a buzzard outfit. We've had that movie. With what you've been saying, Jacob, it's where I'm at, too. You've told us the story about manhood and development and having negative paternal influences. I don't want that story anymore. And casting Malkovich, that's only continuing in the Defoe, Molina, Hayden Church tradition. Let's get some fresh blood in here. Let's get a new director. Change is good. Raimi has shown us his best. Whatever that new movie was going to be, it wasn't going to be his best. So I'm all for the new movie. I don't miss Malkovich Vulture. But for all her carping, believe it or not, Kirsten Dunst did sign up for Spider-Man 4 after Raimi and after McGuire. She likes a paycheck. (laughs) Well, maybe, but here is what was planned. I mentioned before they were trying to put Black Cat in Part 2. Black Cat was going to be in Part 4, and it would have been played by someone who would go on to play a Black Cat, Anne Hathaway. Okay. And she was going to be the new love interest. Dunst did return, and the plan was she would have been written out of Spider-Man 4, probably by dying. That's well, that should make uh, everyone happy, fans and foes alike. <laughs> I always think that's a little harsh, you know. We'll get into the Nolan Batman films, but if you really wanted to hurt Katie Holmes, you do it by not bringing her back, not by bringing her back and then paying her to kill her. So I think that's a kind of a cheap shot, but that is what would have happened is the studio was going to choose to part ways with Dunst or vice versa. She would have come back just long enough to die, which really is the only way to end that love story, isn't it? If you've loved a girl since you were five, it could be a very cool storyline for Peter. Not such a great storyline for Kirsten, but she didn't want to really be there anyway. I think you're right. I think she wanted to have a steady job. Nobody wants to quit their job without their next one, but I don't think she's proud of these movies, and I don't think she enjoyed doing them. And also, the studio was pushing for a different villain, Toxin. If you noticed in this movie, after Venom blew up, there was still a little bit of symbiote on the screen there. That was going to glom onto somebody else, and we were going to get Toxin. They were going to skip Carnage altogether and go to Venom's grandson. The studio was pushing one way, Raimi another. Eventually, it led to delay after delay, 
And finally, the studio got rid of Raimi because, as I've mentioned many times, Marvel is wanting their properties back. Sony had five years to get this new film going, and they wanted Raimi's film to be out in 2011 when they realized Raimi wasn't going to make the date. And after the lack of love for Spider-Man 3, even though it made a ton of money, mostly in the first weekend, but it made a ton of money between the ill will and once again, Raimi looking in a proposition where he was going to be forced to make a movie about characters he didn't care about instead of what he wanted to make but didn't seem commercially viable, the Vulture. They're like, screw it, we don't need him. Despite what Kirsten Dunst says, we're going to reboot it and start all over. And that's what we have Friday. Yep, the movie comes out midnight tonight. I'm curious. I've seen Spider-Man. I don't feel like... It's ever been too awful, except for that Chinese web. They've got a lot of room here to maneuver. I, I'll be optimistic. I'll say, yeah, this may be one of the best. Who knows? This may be the best Spider-Man movie. It's got potential to be that. Well, we will find out really soon. So, guys, thank you for joining me. And until next time, remember, with great podcasts come great responsibility. It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. He was the only one who could have stopped Octavius. Yes, Spider-Man was a hero. I just couldn't see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. It's good to have you back, Spider-Man. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. It's hip, it's now, it's wild, and how? Crawl on the World Wide Web to NowPlayingPodcast.com each Tuesday and Friday as we review another Spider-Man movie through the release of The Amazing Spider-Man in July. What are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go! And be sure to visit the Venganza Media Gazette at VenganzaMedia.com forward slash gazette to read Arnie's reviews of every episode of the 1970s Spider-Man TV series. Far be it for me to interfere with the First Amendment. Be my guest. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives. You can find reviews of other comic-based movie series, such as The Avengers, Batman, X-Men, Blade, Ghost Rider, and Punisher. Hey, where are all my comic books? Oh, those dreadful things. I gave those away. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Rocky, Transformers, The X-Files, Tron, and many more. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I am so loving this. Oh, me too. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Game. Looks like just in the nick of time. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll be there. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going. I'll be here when you get back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. You can find a donate button using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. 
That rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. Now Playing's Spider-Man Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Misery, 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 that's what you've chosen. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And I've never even seen his face. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Columbia Pictures. Spider-Man and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company. And no infringement is intended. What are you, his lawyer? Get out of here. Let him sue me. Get rich like a normal person. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I missed the part where that's my problem. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved. Enough said. Additionally, Peter confronts Harry, and in the fight, Harry throws a pumpkin bob at the web... Bob? Additionally... (laughs) Question, and this is, again, coming from a comic newbie, but I have heard him called Hobgoblin. Is he Green Goblin or Hobgoblin? You've never heard him called Hobgoblin. He is Green Goblin or in... No, I have heard him called Green Goblin. Not in the movie. People have called, oh, Hobgoblin is in this movie. Nobody's ever said that. He's not Hobgoblin. No one that knows the facts, the comics. He is called New Goblin. I never heard that. It never happened. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody who knew what they were talking about called him Hobgoblin. I didn't say they did. I wanted you to tell me what the (laughs) hell Hobgoblin is. He's talking like this. I'm going to get you, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had this bad a mouth of Jack Teeth since Fright Night. Oh boy! I made yeah, Stuart that, snort. You did. <laughs> Why? Evil equals jacked up teeth. People, if you got fucked up teeth, you're evil. I don't care who you are. Sorry, England. Yeah. Well, <laughs> God, we're slap happy. It's so late. <laughs> You got Elizabeth Banks, Bryce Dallas Howard, and what's her face? Uh, Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> That's perfect. You keep that as a blooper, please. And Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> <laughs>